Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel Welcome to another episode of TV I Say with Ashley Ray. It's episode 21, and today my guest is Nicole Cliff. Nicole is absolutely amazing, one of my favorite Twitter followers, one of my favorite writers. You probably know her from Slate. We'll get into that whole conversation later. She's here to talk about so many documentaries that have been out. Alan versus Pharaoh, as I've been watching and talking about on the pod. Also, the, the Meghan and Harry interview. <laughs> Finally catching up on a bunch of things that have happened on TV over the last few weeks. So I wanted to bring in an expert, get someone who is really knowledgeable, who gives advice to people to weigh in on these topics. But before we get to that, it's time for the watch list and my pick of the week. I watched a lot of TV over the last week. I'm not going to rehash the shows I always talk about. You know, I tell you every week, watch Bob's Burgers, watch Young Rock. Let's skip across all of that. They had amazing episodes last week. But let's just get into the the interesting stuff, the notable stuff. I want to start with uh, Generation on HBO Max. <laughs> I I still want to call it Generation Plushin. When it came out, they did three episodes, and I said that made me a little worried They put out another two episodes, and I like them. I I felt these additional two episodes did a lot to balance these characters out a bit more and to really just fill out a lot of their background stories. But I still am just having a hard time feeling weighted in the world they're showing me. It's still very much a problem of why this story, why do I care kind of, because right now it just feels like these kids are just kind of queer for queer sake, which isn't the sense I get from other shows of the genre like Euphoria and Skins. I'm not just watching these kids because, oh my goodness, they're the weirdo kids that you want to watch. There's a more engaging kind of emotional story there. And here I'm just kind of like, the emotional story is right there, but it's engaged with in this way that just, I don't know, hasn't really pulled me in yet. I think with the central character, he's really good. The actor is incredible. But there's a whole plot with him and this guidance counselor having this like flirty like thing where the guidance counselor like isn't really playing into it, but also isn't like just being an adult and telling him like, hey, stop, this is inappropriate. Or (laughs) 
I mean, like, what I would love to see happen is for him to just be like, hey, you know, you're a high schooler and I'm an adult and you know this is inappropriate and, you know, I want to explore, like, this hypersexualization and, like, what what is happening that makes you feel this behavior is okay and obviously this is a red flag and I'm a mandated reporter, <laughs> so I have a lot of questions about why you would think this behavior is okay with an adult. That's like the response you want to see from an appropriate guidance counselor. But in the world of Generate Plushin, it's like, uh oh, no, instead, they're secretly talking on a dating app. And I guess you're supposed to be like, cool, what, ooh, yay, what's gonna happen? Or (laughs) when really, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, hopefully, the second he figures out it's this kid, he's like, you need help. But I'm excited to see where it goes. I also did a little research on the the team behind it. I I don't know why I thought like a queer person of color did this show, but it's like these two gay dads and their white 19-year-old daughter. And they they're literally like, "Yeah, we just kind of let her like have an HBO show as a learning experience." That added a lot of context to the show. So, after that, Hoarders and Intervention are back, back on A&E. You know I love Hoarders and Intervention. You know that is my reality go-to right there. The docu-series is my thing. They both came back great. Hoarder's a wonderful just episode about a guy who, like, his wife died. He's stuck in his house. His home became a prison of loneliness. And he was already a hoarder. And after she was gone, well, that was the end. Intervention, if you've been watching recent seasons, they did a thing now where they focus on one city and they pick up different stories in one city so you can really see how drugs have impacted that area versus just kind of like random stories all over. I really like that tactic. And this this season's city is Las Vegas. Last season, I think they did Vancouver. But it's really just a good way to kind of show you how tied together all these communities are from the families to unhoused people and how they're all impacted by drugs. So the first two episodes have been really good. And obviously, I'll have intervention. Anyway, moving on, we also had some new Grey's Anatomy. We came back together as a show after the terrifying, or I guess it wasn't even terrifying. It was just kind of like annoying death of one of the main doctors. <laughs> it, where Meredith is like still on her beach. It's, I, I, there's nothing even to really say because nothing different is happening. It's still the same Grey's Anatomy. I started watching Aquafina is Nora from Queens. I had never really seen it, and it has just moved to HBO Max, along with some other really great former Comedy Central properties like Southside and the other two. So I would recommend HBO Max because you can check all those out now. Aquafina is Nora from Queens. I'm really enjoying it, but I feel like it's this thing. Uh, someone on Twitter said to me that it they felt like it was a little like New Girl, where everyone else is kind of more interesting than Aquafina, and that's kind of how I feel. I like love every other character and i love all the plots when she's interacting with other people but when she has to like carry it herself i'm a little like oh this episode's kind of eh, not my favorite and i just i wish she had like a sidekick character and i thought in the beginning that's what was going to happen like they introduced her like friend who was this black girl and i was like oh okay this will be like the sidekick character that like makes her plots a little more fun and then she just like burns a black girl's house down and that girl hasn't been seen again (laughs) And then they they do another one where she, like, gets involved in, like, uh, identity theft heist deal with this comedian. 
Michelle Buteau, who is one of my favorite comics. She's so funny. And they start working together in that episode. And I was like, oh, here we go. This will be the like sidekick. This is the energy was like really good. And I was like, this is what it is. This is what it needed. Great. And then she doesn't remain in the show by the end of the episode. And I was like, oh, that's okay. But I'm enjoying the show. And I can't wait to see what they do with the next season. After that, we have Superstore. Uh, By the time you are listening to this, we will be in a post-Superstore world. The finale will have aired. When I'm recording this, I haven't seen it. But I have loved Superstore for so long. I am so sad it's ending. But I do think it's time. We get this special one-hour finale, and it does look like America Ferrera is going to be back. So I'm, I'm happy about that. That's a blessing. But... I don't know. Superstore just seemed like one of those shows that could go on forever, but it also seems so special that we got it as long as it did. I'm shocked sometimes that it kind of wasn't canceled early, like a happy endings, because it really is a strong ensemble comedy. It's it's so well written, and it covers a lot of really interesting topics in a way that sitcoms typically didn't do. It didn't shy away from the realities of a show about people who work in a a Walmart-type store in a country today, like America and what that means, and, you know, kept it as a funny sitcom, (laughs) and so much as that means. But absolutely love Superstore. I'm excited for the finale. Most likely, you read my tweets, I'll be tweeting about it. (laughs) But I fully expect the show's going to go out on top. They've been nailing this last season, and I'm going to be sad to see it go. After that, I caught up on Grownish. The season finale was a few weeks ago, and I had realized somehow I had missed like five episodes. I was like, I started the newest season, and I just kind of like, you know, I don't know, Hulu stopped telling me about it. But I dove back in, finished up Grownish. You know, Grownish having the same problem as Aquafina, where I just love every character except for Zoe. And they get into, like, a bunch of the, the, like, interesting things with the side characters, especially with Aaron and Chloe. And I wanted it to just focus on that. But then, and it it works because Zoe, for a lot of this season, is, like, she dropped out and she's, like, doing her job thing. But then she'll, like, come back to campus. And then they end it with her, like, coming back permanently. And it's a little, like, oh, well, okay, fine. But I did really enjoy the finale. I, I like the story that they brought together. And I really, really love what they did with with a lot of the girls. And I just love the entire campus story this season. So maybe they'll figure out how to get Zoe into it better. She'll find her groove. I think it's just funny that like everyone else has found her groove except except for Zoe, which is also, you know, the plot of the show. So hey, there it is. Up next, the Goldbergs. I have to mention the Goldbergs. I, okay, I don't even really know where to start with this because people always think it's so weird that I not only watch the Goldbergs, but love it and continue to watch it. George Seagal just passed away this week at 87 years old, uh, complications from surgery. He played Pops on the Goldbergs. I started watching this show. It was like after the third season, I had never really checked it out. And I like, I obviously I'm a big family sitcom person. And finally, I was like, let's do this. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Wendy McLendon. So I was like, okay. And I loved it. I ended up watching like all three seasons in a week. And ever since, I've never missed an episode. I've never missed an episode. And also the guy who makes it, Adam Goldberg, is just like really nice. Like if you if you tweet anything about the Goldbergs, if you're just like, oh, that that's a cool like picture in the background of the Goldbergs, he'll like find you and be like, 
oh, that's cool. We found it from this place. And he'll just like answer cast questions. He's so great. And that just like made me want to watch it more and get into it. And the show is now in its eighth season and it's still really good. It really is just kind of starting to lose steam. And honestly, I think a lot of that is because of COVID. You could tell they had a lot of restrictions in the way that they could shoot because it is a fairly big ensemble. And one of the things I noticed is that George Seagal in these like last few episodes, these COVID episodes, you could tell he was kind of kept away from the main cast. Like obviously he shoots a lot with Adam, uh, the kid who plays Adam. And they would have like pop on the couch and Adam standing. So you could tell it was like they shot it six feet apart. And there were little things like that. But, you know, you don't know if it's because, oh, is that just COVID or because he's ill or they couldn't film with him for that much time. But just even in those last few episodes, he was so funny. He was killing it. Like, even with all these COVID restrictions and they couldn't really like, you know, use him in as many of the plots he just still was turning in these amazing performances. And I'm glad that we have them. I've been revisiting uh, early seasons of the Goldbergs since I found out they still live up to everything I love the first time. There's just like a simple joy to the show. It's just like your great family sitcom to me, the Goldbergs is probably what comes closest to like taking the mantle of Roseanne. You know, there was the middle, I would say, and that's kind of how I got into the Goldbergs because I got into the middle first. But I think the middle and the Goldbergs, they just really hold on to that middle class sensibility. You know, the dad who's like, now, why are you making me go up and down the stairs? It's it's classic. I like it. Thank you to the Goldbergs. Let's keep moving. I also have been rewatching True Life uh, on the Paramount Plus app. I'm still doing my like free trial, so I'm watching as much as I can. MTV True Life. It's a classic, of course. I was obsessed with True Life growing up. There was actually an episode that was recorded in my hometown of Rockford. It was focused on a kid who like did concerts and stuff. The episode was uh, True Life, I'm a Sex Offender, because he was one. You know, hometown pride, I guess, right there. (laughs) There's three documentaries about the city where I'm from, Rockford, and the three documentaries are MTV True Life, I'm a Sex Predator, Life Inside a Crack House, Rockford, Illinois, and then Minding the Gap which was nominated for an Oscar, but is also very depressing. That's where I'm from. Great. But True Life, it it is good, except, I mean, looking, like, now you can watch it. And I mean, even at the time, you can see how produced it is. Like, they have one episode that's like, I'm the black sheep of my family. And it's like a girl who's literally like, I buy my clothes at Hot Topic and my family can't deal with that. And you can tell that producers are like, okay, but could you phrase it like, I'm the black sheep of my, and it's just, you can hear them being Fred lines. And there's one episode about slut shaming, which yes, slut shaming is real. But the way that they like set it up for one of the girls is that they're like, she's best friends with her, all these guys and her guy friends just won't stop slut shaming her. And there's a point where she's just like walks into a bar and they're just like, we got a slut at 12 o'clock. But you can tell the producers are like, really hype it up. Like, go crazy, guys. Like, this isn't how they normally act with her. And it's it's very much for the True Life cameras. Perhaps the biggest episode uh, and the most shocking is True Life. I'm having a baby with my cousin. And the premise, obviously, is people who are having a baby with their cousin, who are married, getting married, or just pregnant by their cousin. And one of the couples is legitimately like first cousins and she got pregnant and he's in prison and they think they're in love. I won't spoil how that goes, but it is 
real cousins and it's shocking yeah the other one is like they make it seem like they're first cousins and the family like has rejected them but then when you look it up afterwards it actually turns out that they're third cousins and like no one in the family cared and they had been going to like all the family events and holidays and it was all just like hyped up for the cameras and really their family was just like no we all know they're third cousins they didn't even know each other growing up literally no one cares so, you know, that's the thing with true life is it's true-ish life. After that, I watched three seasons of Seven Year Switch. Shout out to Kimberly Drew, my guest from two weeks back. She recommended this one to me and I dove right in. I dove right in. I watched three seasons in four or five days. It's it's short seasons. They're like eight episodes, so I'm not like super crazy. But Seven Year Switch is a lifetime show that focuses on couples who have not even been together seven years sometimes. They're just couples who are like, we're kind of sick of each other, right? We're like tired of each other. We have been doing this, not super into being married anymore. And so they're having issues and they reach out to do switch therapy. Switch therapy. Now, the producers and the doctors on the show say a lot of things to convince you that switch therapy is like a real thing, like a scientific studied thing that like, they're like, yeah, doctors everywhere are recommending switch therapy. That is not the case. This is just a reality show dream thing that they have made up for television. (laughs) And how they do it is they find couples that have like similar people. So this is how you know it's not really scientific because it only works if you're in a heterosexual couple and it only works if you and your partner fit relationship dynamics like i'm the type a one and he's a man child like you have to fit into those stereotypes in order for switch therapy to work for you so they'll take a couple that's like i'm the type a one and he's the man child and then they'll take another couple that's like i'm the financial planner and she's a diva and they'll mix them up so that the type a people are together and the like selfish party people are together And they'll be like, okay, this is what you think you want in a partner, but is it really what you want? And they send them to these like wonderful Airbnbs in LA, (laughs) which is not fair because right from the jump, it's like one couple lives in a trailer and they like are taking them out of the trailer and they're like, now go live with your new spouse in this amazing Airbnb that is like furnished and has a pool and tell me if it's better than your regular marriage. (laughs) And of course, these people are like, yeah, I don't know. I'm like starting to really think maybe I married the wrong person because I'm like having such a good time with Kelsey at this beach house. And it's like, well, yeah, you're with Kelsey at a beach house. And the other thing is that they tell them you have to fully surrender to switch therapy for it to work. And if you don't give in completely, if you don't like fully show your vulnerability, it's not going to work with your real spouse. And for it to work, you have to totally open up to your fake spouse. You, They tell you like, treat your fake spouse like your real spouse. And they like even give them fake rings to put on the first day. Like it's, they're supposed to take it that seriously. And of course the people who are like, well, I understand that it's like symbolic and this is just therapy, but it's not real. They're like, oh, well, they have emotional walls up. They can't relate. And it's like, no, this person is being healthy about this. And so they encourage them to take it really seriously and to basically be like, this is my new husband. And there are people who are like, I just like don't know what to do because like Justin is my new husband, but like Bobby was my old husband. I just, I know I I made promises to Bobby, but Justin's my new husband. So, and it's like, yeah, that's not real. (laughs) 
It's not real. It's a TV show. But it's really wild watching these people do this because some of them, of course, do take it very seriously. I would recommend just if you're going to check it out, start with season two and just watch season two. Season one has a real nobody knows what they're doing energy. Like, even the producers and the people making the show seem very like, what if we like, I don't know, have them like, go on a trip together? (laughs) That could be a thing, right? Like, oh, what if they like, paint a picture? (laughs) And it's just really random. And then in later seasons, it gets a little more like, it gets more interesting. But season two is the best one. It has the most like drama and is the most shocking. But seven year switch. Hey, I had a good time, even though it, it makes you roll your eyes a lot. And I don't know how those doctors like paid people and convinced anyone that switch therapy was a real thing. All of those couples should probably sue any of the people who got divorced It's most likely because of that show. After that, I did Marriage or Mortgage. I'm going to be real with you. I could not get into this one. I couldn't get into Marriage or Mortgage. It just, I, for me, it's like, are you kidding me? You kidding me? What, who, who's picking a marriage? I'm going to mortgage. Like every, the very premise just annoyed me. Like the first couple, she was like, Well, I was raised like, you know, if you're renting, you're wasting money and like, but weddings are expensive. And I was just like, what? Those aren't the same. You can't even come. How can you compare those things? (laughs) Rent is a thing you have to pay for. You have to have a place to live. Weddings, you can scale them up or down. You can figure that out. So I watched one episode and gave up. I will probably finish it at some point. And that's the watch list. That is everything I I watched worth mentioning over the last week. I think I'm going to change this up. So I'm going to do one more episode of the show, and then I'm going to go on a little hiatus. I'm going to retool some things. I want to start making this watch list more interactive. I want to start like having my mom and my friends and my comedian friends go through my watch list with me while we smoke weed. I mean, I'm smoking weed now by myself, but I mean, yeah, of course, clearly people love just listening to me, Stone, talking about TV, but I just think it would be fun to change up the formatting a bit. If you have thoughts, feel free to send them to booking at theashleyray.com or just, you know, on the reply on Twitter at TVISAPod. But I'm going to be retooling some things where I'm going to go on a little hiatus and we'll be back. But before I do that, I want to highlight my pick of the week from that big list. Uh, my pick this week, I'm going to go with Generay Plushin. <laughs> Generation Plus. Generation. I See, I, the plus sign throws me. But I'm going to go with Generation as my pick of the week. The next two episodes, I think the first five, really tell a great story. I do really like the vibe of it. I just am really curious to kind of see where it's going to go with some of the the stories it thinks it's telling. Also, I don't know, it just seems like a bunch of kids who I guess never watched Teen Mom. And that's hard for me to believe. Because didn't we all just grow up watching Teen Mom, knowing how to not have babies in bathrooms (laughs) and in a mall? Okay, well. Also, I'm going to do a pick of the week for the Goldbergs because obviously with Pop's death, I I think you you should probably go revisit that. Up next, I have my wonderful interview with Nicole Clinton. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. 
There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. My guest today is Nicole Cliff. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. You are a parenting advice columnist for Slate, uh, currently on hiatus while you work on a book, co-founder of The Toast. You are now writing for Foreign Policy. You're also one of my favorite Twitter people because I feel like you figured out the best way to use Twitter, which is sparingly. So I admire you and like look up to you in that regard, too. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm a huge fan of your work and your podcast and your Twitter presence. I have a little alt account where I just follow people I really like and I never tweet. And so I'm always about to text you tweets that you have yourself liked or actually made. Yeah, I love that. That is the future I want for my Twitter future, I guess, is that I just have a small account. I just can enjoy everyone's jokes from there and what people are saying about the shows. And then I can just step back and not have it consume my brain all the time. No, it works out really well. I think that I am just someone who, like, I can't use Twitter in a moderate fashion. Same. Yeah. I just can't. So if I'm on Twitter, I am 100% in it. And instead, I like the new thing where every couple of months I come back for a few hours, say hi to everyone, like, say something messy about whatever's currently going on on Twitter, and then just nope out. And it's fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. And there are a few topics that have been obviously in the Twitter sphere, I guess, but I have just wanted your opinions on them. I've I've just wondered, what is Nicole thinking about all of this? And so I'm glad you're here today so we can talk about it. Just for the viewers out there, we're going to be talking about the Britney Spears doc. I don't think we need any spoiler reviews for any of this. It's all things that happen. But we will be talking about the Britney Spears doc. We'll be talking about the royal interview. And we'll also be talking about Alan versus Pharaoh. So just a little trigger warning. There will be some CSA content at the end. But that will be at the end if you want to skip out of that part of the convo. But... I just feel like you're the perfect person to address all of these topics, these heavy things that I think on the surface seem so just about celebrity culture and how we engage with celebrities, but are really about so much more. I have opinions on everything. So it's usually a safe bet that I'll have something to say about most things. But no, I feel like the zeitgeist recently has been tapping into a lot of things that I try to think very seriously about. And the first of which is framing Britney Spears. So you and I were both extremely obsessed with framing Uh. Britney. Spears. Uh, It was great. I wish it had been longer. I think it it, like a a limited series would have been something I think would have been completely possible. Yeah, Uh, I feel like it could have gotten the four episode treatment. And what I really would have liked is for it to have talked more about conservatorships in general, and the disabled people who are under conservatorships, and to what degree these are restrictive or abusive. But what I found incredible about framing Britney Spears is that it's someone we all suddenly remembered we cared about so much. Yeah. 
And I think that for a long time, disability journalists have been talking about Britney Spears and talking about conservatorships. And I certainly have friends in disability journalism who've been trying unsuccessfully to pitch pieces for years about conservatorships in general, but ideally tied to Britney Spears, knowing that's an easy route in for people. Yeah. And had met with no interest from any outlets whatsoever on the topic, which is sadly fairly common with disability journalism. We really like we need to see it pegged to something bright and shiny for it to be something people want to engage with. I'm hoping, you know, Crip Camp just got nominated for an yeah. Oscar. It's the most amazing documentary. I'm hoping that so many more people will see it and get interested in issues around disability. Yeah. I also feel like with Brittany being at sort of the center of it, it's like that's going to get people's attention. But at the same time, there's also, I think, at least for me, there was this sort of belief of she's Britney Spears. She's fine. It can't be that bad. As someone who like loved, I was a child, you know, when she was big and I loved her as a kid and then I got older, lost touch. I didn't realize the depth of power that they had over her. I just thought people control her money. She's a millionaire, though. Like, she's fine. I didn't realize like they control who she sees and how really this works in our country. And how we see her, her inability to have control over her own social media accounts. Can she have a phone? Can she do X? The fact that we're talking about someone who could be given a Las Vegas residency, which is one of the most incredibly arduous, demanding things someone can do outside of being like a physical laborer in an incredibly dangerous job. Yeah. Like You're working constantly. And it's like, oh, no, you're you're fine to do that. But Lord knows you couldn't have an Insta where you can just put anything you want on there. What I found really interesting about the documentary as well was how much it reframed some of my memories of Britney's most infamous year, obviously. We've all seen the t-shirts of Britney Spears can get through 1990, blah, then, you know, I can do this. But the difference between video and still really made a tremendous impact on me. You know, those photographs we all remember of her attacking the hood of that car with an umbrella. The way she was just deer in the headlights, she looked absolutely out of it. She's slamming this car, but we never got the zoom back that we now get in framing Britney Spears to see the video of that incident, to see um, what's happening, the context, her fleeing with the kids in situations where we were like, yes, that baby should have been in a car seat. Should have been in a car seat, yeah. (laughs) I am not arguing that at all, but yeah. we didn't see in that video you know, that she was being pursued by pursued. hundreds of people. Yeah. And so, and if you understand the context of like a mother protecting her kids, it makes sense. And there was also the thing with her shaving her head. And at the time, I remember everyone being like, this is such a sign she's lost her mind. And then I was just recently rewatching Time Traveling Bong on Comedy Central, Alana Glazer's. Yeah. And there's a point where she like they need weed for an emergency and she like pulls her hair out and smokes it. And she's like, I remember this because in Britney Spears, when she shaved her head, it was because she'd been smoking pot and she didn't want to test positive for drugs. And she knew if she shaved her head, she wouldn't lose custody of her kids. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that like that. I don't know if that's true. That could just be from a comedy. But I was like, oh, duh, of course This wasn't some girl who just like lost her mind and was shaving her head to start over. It's absolutely possible this was part of her strategy. This was a smart girl doing what she had to do. When you look at the idea that she was in danger of losing her kids and that because she was in danger of losing her kids, she voluntarily entered into a system she could not get out of. 
Like by all accounts, when she entered into the conservatorship, it was very much a situation of if I don't do this, yes. I'm going to lose custody. And I am sure that for myself and probably for you, one of the most sobering moments in that documentary is when the attorney was asked, so how many people have you seen get out of conservatorships? And like, oh, none. None. No one. You don't. Yeah. It's, it's a roach motel. And that was just incredibly sobering. And Brittany yeah. is also not the only celebrity in a conservatorship. You know, Nichelle Nichols, who's one of the most amazing people who's ever lived. Yeah. Is, and that, I haven't delved too much into that, so I don't want to speak as an authority on the topic. But that was also in the context of potential elder abuse, potential financial abuse. But they're so, so common. Yeah. And- I just thought it was also kind of wild that I Care A Lot came out so soon after And it just kind of seemed like, obviously, these two things are about the same thing. And this overall issue we have of, of not trusting people who are disabled to make their own decisions and to lead their own lives. And I don't don't feel like we've really connected the dots of like Britney Spears and, and I care a lot. I don't know, I feel like there's just such a clear tie sort of there of like, this is the sort of system that even someone like Britney Spears can get stuck in. Like what, come on, that should wake you up to me. We can also expand it out to nursing homes, you know, which is something that this past year we've certainly become a lot more aware of as a, a really, really troubling system, which then becomes institutionalization in general, which is incredibly complex, impacts so many people. But I uh, was recently reviewing uh, La Llorona, the really excellent Guatemalan movie. There was an American La Llorona movie that came out the same year in the green yeah. universe, which was not nearly as good. It was fine. I enjoyed it. I like all horror movies pretty much. But in my review of it, I was talking about how it's also a horror movie about elder care and that there have been a lot of horror movies in recent years that deal with elder care. So I'm thinking, you know, the taking of Deborah Logan, I'm thinking Relic. And what these movies often have in common is the idea that what you're taking care of is fundamentally monstrous. Like that starts to be something that gets tangled with. Yeah. Um, But there is also a great horror in being the person who is taken care of in this situation. And I really hope that as we eventually exit the pandemic, that these questions we've started asking ourselves about like, oh, what if nursing homes are just bad? (laughs) There needs to be massive reform to nursing homes in general, not just when we have a pandemic. Pandemic, and we, we see these issues. I also kind of wonder, you know, when it comes to the Britney Spears doc, obviously, people have this renewed interest, especially in the Free Britney campaign, it looks like it might actually work out for her, it looks like she'll get out of this, which, as we've already said, is so rare. But I I just wonder, is that momentum going to continue? Is it how do we get people to connect the dots that okay, once we get Britney free, you should still care about this? Exactly. (laughs) No, I, I think that I was heartened in the documentary, because obviously, you're going to see a lot of really weird people in a documentary like this, because it is a fan-driven movement. Yeah. And grown adults who are super obsessed with Britney Spears are going to be a little funky. They're going to look a little weird on camera. <laughs> They're going to say some completely out-of-pocket things. But they've really done a lot to educate themselves about the issues. I was so impressed by that. Like, it yeah. wasn't like, where's our Britney? Get her out. It was okay, what's the complex legal framework that Britney Spears finds herself in? Like there were people who were essentially putting themselves through law school, sitting yeah, there. To fully yeah. understand her case. Yeah. yeah. They, no, they were like, okay, this guy she wanted to have as her guardian. Why wasn't she allowed to have him as her guardian? Yeah. Why not allowed to see the mental health workup that determined she couldn't pick him? 
Yeah. Like those moments in the documentary where you could see people just, like, I was sitting around my room just like so furious. And I knew that stuff. Yeah. I know all this stuff. And then, yeah, and I didn't know that it was it was just so out there in the public. And Babs Gray, who who runs the podcast about in, uh, Britney Spears' Instagram, which is an amazing comic, a friend of mine, she'd been telling me about her podcast, and I still didn't click didn't click <laughs> my head. I was like, oh, is it just because her podcast, her Instagram is funny? I didn't realize, like, no, because her Instagram is codes because she can't say what she wants to say, and that they've been really looking into this and understanding her for so long that it's not just, you know, stan culture and people being like, I'm obsessed with this celebrity. So of course, even though I don't know them, I'm, I'm into them and I want to know about their life. It really is people who are like, this is a miscarriage of justice. Just look at the facts. Look at the paperwork. No, it is a, it is a miscarriage of justice. She is not in an institution, but she is not free. She is not able to make meaningful choices about her finances or her life or her social media presence or her work. That incredible moment in the documentary when she's supposed to introduce her residency and just keeps going. Just keeps going. I, for all the fans, that was just a moment of, oh, she has been yelling at us through her Instagram. Yeah. She has been trying to tell us something is wrong. Like, and I didn't even know that happened. I was like, how did I not see this in the news? What was I doing? What was I doing? I'm going to segue us slightly because I something so I love the the podcast you're wrong about, which of course ideally would at this point be titled The Media Tried to Lie to You About. Yes. <laughs> because I think some people who would actually really enjoy the podcast are like, I've never been wrong about anything in my life. And you'll find that for many of the episodes that you were in fact right. But the media narrative has been terrible. It's also yeah. usually police incompetence is usually what the answer is. But they did this stunning multi-episode deep dive on, of all things, Jessica Simpson's autobiography. And it was, I was glued to it, Ashley. Yes. I was glued like, to it. You are not even the fifth person to say Jessica Simpson's biography is where it's at. This thing. It bangs. It's an incredible journey. And you're wrong about like, I told my friends, you can either read the book or listen to five podcast episodes about it, but you got to do one of the two. Okay. But it is such an incredible look at just the Disney machine of the 90s, the music video, Tommy Modela's in it, because of course he is. Yeah. Jessica Simpson is such an interesting character in it because she's always been the person who is less than Britney, Right. She lost her spot on the Mickey Mouse show to Britney Spears. Yeah. She had to audition after Christina Aguilera. Justin Timberlake's appearance in the book is so Of course. Yeah. And this is what I want to hear about. because oh, yeah. We're all mad at Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Right? Like, he's done to me. He's, he's done. just done. He's done. And also, Sexy Back wasn't even that good. So we, yeah. we made too much credit for that. Yeah. And his last like country album, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Personally, I think Lonely Island has been his best appearance <laughs> But I'm a Lonely Island stan. I, I would I, agree with that, actually. I would say, like, we if history remembers him as just, like, a guy who collaborated with some comedians on some songs, I think that'd be fair. That's a great assessment. He was fantastic in Mother Lover, and that's uh, really, yeah. at the end of the day, I, I think I said on Twitter once, I thought that was the peak of white culture. <laughs> <laughs> I would, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, but also Mother Lover. Yeah, like, that... That's all I need from JT. He's just done so much harm. And I know he put out his little apology because like people were so mad at him. But the apology just was so false to me. I feel like what he did to Janet Jackson, there's nothing he can do to make that right. What he did to Britney, there's nothing he can do to make that right. So what does Jessica say in her book? 
here's what Jessica says. First of all, Jessica is a beautiful angel of song who is very realistic about her own intelligence and has terrible taste. And Lord knows so many people do. And fair. Yeah. It's just deeply unfortunate that the same woman, she was with John Mayer. And that guy, I'm telling you, the portions about John Mayer in that book are horrific. They are horrific. And I'm not talking physical abuse. I'm just talking the sort of like long-term gaslighting and undermining and saying bananas things about an interview. You remember when he said she was sexual napalm? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was in, I believe, the same interview where he said like, he calls his dick david do yeah yeah Yeah. i think like the it was playboy or something like that yeah for like a year he kind of hid out after that because people are like wow you found the worst thing you could possibly say say, yeah like and now he's he's starting to like try to make a comeback he like hid from twitter and went to tiktok because he was like oh the kids on tiktok are too young to know what i did (laughs) and now they're all just clowning him they all like duet his videos and they're just like apologize to taylor Apologize to Jessica. Apologize. <laughs> so the Justin portion of the uh, Jessica Sims, but there's just two tiny anecdotes, but I feel like they express so much. So Jessica, it's very difficult to get to the final stages of the Mickey Mouse Club audition process. Okay. Yeah. It's very difficult. And she'd gotten there because she was, you know, talented and her weird parents were also really like pushing her along the conveyor belt. They got weirder over time, but she completely blows the audition. And it's one of those, it's almost impossible to read about anyone blowing an audition. Yeah. Even if you don't like them, because just you can feel like, imagine sitting there. They took one fewer person (laughs) than they had planned to for that class of Mickey Mouse stars to not take Jessica. To not take, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's how bad her audition was. And to be like that young and just like, come on. She's a baby. And she's coming off stage and Justin Timberlake just looks at her and says, what did you do? And breaking her, her tiny little heart. But then years and years and years later, it's after her marriage to Nick Lachey has fallen apart. And she winds up like meeting up with Justin Timberlake at a thing. And they go back to one of their places and, you know, they're they're talking and they're both attractive people. And they start, which is the most I'll say about him in that ramen hair phase, (laughs) but they start making out and suddenly they stop making out and he turns away from her and pulls out his phone. And she's like, what's up? And he said, I have to call Ryan Gosling. We had a bet about which of us would make out with you first. And she was like, I'm sorry, you made a bet when we were children. Children. Auditioning for a children's television show. And now you, a grown ass man, are, are contacting Ryan Gosling. I need to know Ryan Gosling's response. Oh, exactly. I, I'm like, please tell me Ryan Gosling was like, why is Justin Timberlake? Yeah. Like, like, what's wrong with you, dude? Like, I hope he was just like, bro. <laughs> Bro, why would you think I would care about this? Why do you still care about this? But no, she talks a lot in the, the book about, and this is something that Michael Hobbs talks about a lot in the You're Wrong About episodes is just, and Sarah Marshall, about how really in the 90s, women were supposed to be like dolphins, like 90% torso, consistently damp. Yeah. And as I see the low rise jeans thing trying to come back, the low rise jeans and the boot cuts. 
combined. So you lost all of the fabric you needed up here. And yeah. it has the bottom where it's on the bottom where it's, yeah, you're just dragging it around. I'm five, five. I've never been a fan of that style. Brutal. It was brutal. Then we have to stop it from coming back. Yeah. But you know, Jessica Simpson at some, you know, her label was just constantly, you need more abs. You need more abs. You need more abs. Uh, she did contour them on at some point before they figured out how to do that to Robert Pattinson in the Twilight movies. <laughs> I'm like, good for you, Jessica Simpson. Yeah. They're ahead of the pack. But at some point she found out she had like a massive cyst in her abdomen, which she got drained. And she was like, I've been trying to like diet down my torso when I had this medical thing happening and yeah. no one cared. And no one cared. Like, I don't know. It's just that period of time and what they put those women through. And I don't know, come, growing up, I was 14, 15. And I just remember this culture of the media being like, women like Jessica Simpson, they know they're stupid and they're silly. And you don't need to really care about where they fall in this idea of feminism. It's okay to laugh at them. And now I look back and I'm like, no, why did we let this sort of like cool girl split happen where it was like, you know, like a pink stupid girl, I guess. I was just uh, <laughs> It's like a pink, pink, stupid girl culture where it was like, you know, like, oh, you deserve that. And it's like, no, looking back, I wish I could go back and be like, just listen to Jessica Simpson and Britney Spears and watch Sex in the City and the OC. And it's unionized with the stupid girls. You don't have to be fighting each other. It's yeah. just so they can sell two different groups of people to you. To, that's, yeah. That's all it is. And then we come, of course, to Janet Jackson, who was treated so dirty. Uh, everybody yeah and people don't seem to understand now how big of the bat like the backlash against her was so huge that like justin faced no consequences no her album completely disappeared it completely disappeared um she was discouraged from showing up at anything anything justin timberlake personally apologized to les moonves so he yeah. got to the grammys and because Janet Jackson didn't crawl on her hands and knees to this disgusting creeper, Les Moonves, and be like, I'm sorry, I did a thing that people probably knew I was going to do. Gonna do. No one to this day is entirely sure, but it was such a double standard. It was so repulsive. She was so publicly shamed for it. It was just grotesque. And it really, like, people don't understand. Like, YouTube was invented essentially, out of that incident. Yeah. Because people wanted to see the clip. To see it, like, to see the clip. Where YouTube came from. Yeah. It was Jeffrey Jackson. And like, we just created a situation where the person who did the thing received essentially no blowback. And the person who had a nipple yeah. was just crucified. Forced to, yeah, just crucified and forced to disappear. I just, I loved her growing up and it was like, do little soundtrack, Janet Jackson, she's killing it. And then she just disappeared. She was just gone all because of this one event. And that alone is enough for me to never forgive Justin Timberlake. No, and no, he, and he's, he's made very pathetic attempts to excuse what he didn't do at that time. Yeah. But at the time, it seems like a, that no one was willing to say, oh, by the way, like, thanks for being chill about this, but you're also being total D-bags to the other person involved. Yeah, it like, was very much like you, you had to take sides. Yeah. Yeah, I long for the triumphant return of Janet Jackson. I hope Janet Jackson just comes out and crushes it for the rest of her life. Yes, I, I think she will. I think this new generation is very much 
they understand these things. Like we're not in this culture where like the only way you can understand media now is like a VH1 series or like, you know, a countdown series on like MTV or something. Like people are always tweeting and talking about these things. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. I think we're hopefully done with Justin, that we are rewriting these types of histories. I'm going to use that, I guess, to segue into into another history that I guess we're all sort of collectively rewriting in a way. Because I want to talk to you about the royal interview with Meghan and Harry and Oprah, obviously. Uh, So, and that one is one where she like said something at one point in the interview where she was just like, I had like no clue this family was like this. And I was just like, girl what news have you been reading? Like what? Cause it wasn't even a situation where I was like, the past has been rewritten or anything. It's like, that one was there girl. Come on. <laughs> I would lay down my life for Meghan Markle. I adore Meghan Markle. I find it. And I certainly, I don't think any of us realized quite what she was getting herself into, but I'm reminded of a short while back when she said that her English friends had tried to tell her. Yeah. No, this is not a great scene. <laughs> over here. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like most Americans, like even me, I didn't really know much about it. My grandma loved Princess Diana, of course. That was my, all grandma's, that was the extent of my knowledge. And I knew that England still had a queen, but I was like, she's just kind of like a figurehead. They don't really care about it. So I thought it was like, if you married the King of Sweden, where it's like, (laughs) it doesn't really matter, but like technically on paper, that's a thing. But then it was like, oh, no, they're actually still all about the firm and this idea of like maintaining the monarchy. And at any moment, like the peasants could uprise and take them down. Like they still actively fear that. No, it's a very consistent fear. It's one of the reasons that so the Commonwealth does not. I'm Canadian, so I'm a member of the Commonwealth. Yes. The Commonwealth does not pass on to the next monarch like England does. Right. Uh, They have to sign on with each monarch. And so very skillfully, and I believe 2018, the queen was like, let's get this shit taken care of while I'm still alive and I'm very popular. Because as we all know, it's not necessarily the case that everyone's going to be like, yeah, let's re-up with Charles. That sounds... I mean, who would want to? That guy doesn't seem great. Doesn't seem great. So they pushed that through while the queen was still alive and extremely popular about two years ago. So I don't think it means they can't eat 
at this point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, she gets used to. It's a very significant choice for the queen to be like, we should get that Commonwealth thing taken care of before that guy's in charge. Because Oh, I don't think she has any faith in Charles. One of the major issues with Charles, and obviously there are a lot of issues with Charles. And first of all, I have a ton of sympathy for anyone like born into that family. Because it's objectively weird to be someone who grows up and no one will ever ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. Because you already know. Like, that's just strange. It's strange that you can't be who you're supposed to be when you grow up until your mom dies. Like, that's weird. Yeah, you're just in this weird holding place of I am nothing until she dies. Nothing until she dies. And there was a time in sort of the, the late 90s when he got into trouble because he would be at dinner parties being like, when will she die? And I know, I know. And he's great. Justin, what a fun guy. Stop saying that. It's not like literal treason anymore, but it's ill-advised. But (laughs) Charles, the queen has succeeded in doing a really good job at her literal job for, I think, a couple of reasons. One, she's a million years old. Two, she really thinks that her God-given duty is to hold this job. Yes, she... Yeah, she truly does believe in the whole system of it. Like, she's old enough to, she really does believe, like, God touched her blood and her dad's blood and it all works out. She was anointed at the moment of her coronation by God, became half God. That was a very good episode of The Crown. (laughs) Yeah. Watch it, totally slaps. But no, Charles, first of all, there's no way Charles believes that. Yeah, he sees through all of it. He sees through all of it. Also, the Queen has been really successful at not having opinions. Yes. Which is the most important part of being in a parliamentary democracy headed by a monarch. (laughs) If you're that monarch, you can't have opinions. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear them. They're probably not that good. And Charles has as many opinions as I do, except mine are great. And his are usually. His are great. Yeah. And he... And he's made that such a kind of big part of his like image rehab is that he's like, I am not afraid to have opinions and I'm not afraid to say that the monarchy needs to change. But it's like, if he gives even that like a little bit, it's like, well, then tear the whole thing down. <laughs> like The minute, like, this is a guy who we already have to keep track of because he'll go on a rant about how all modern architecture is terrible or something. And there'll be like young British architects standing there looking at each other <laughs> like, He's just supposed to shake hands and cut the cord. Like, that really is. You're just supposed to go to bottle cap factories and open them. That is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say we should pay more attention to mental health. Like, this is your job, and it's not going to be enough for him. And then we have the next generation, William and Kate. um, Yeah who were really doing pretty well until that interview. Yeah, they I I didn't really kind of realize what William and Kate were like and how England perceives them or their reputation over there until this interview. They could have skated by. They could have done something where they were like, Charles will never reign and we're just going to go straight to William. And I would have been like, you know what? Cool. That's fine. Or have just assumed, you know, Charles is not going to live that much longer than the queen. You know, True. that the too. Queen, like he's getting up there. The queen could have another 10 years in her based on her familial track record. Yeah. I could easily see another 10 years happening. I easily see another 10 years. I mean, I thought Philip was done for and he's still, yeah, never count him out. The dude is fully purple, but he's still going. So I, I think like if Charles does make it, he might get like a good 20, 30 years in the chair. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a pretty good estimate. And William and Kate have always been more like the queen in that they've been pretty good at not 
having opinions. Something you will not know about Kate, I guarantee this, is that Kate has curly hair. What? Kate has naturally. I can't even imagine her with curly hair. You're like, you're saying that. And I'm just like, what are you saying? The only reason I know this is they were on a foreign trip where she couldn't get a blowout every two days. And she just had these gorgeous curls. She looked fantastic. Like but any family that would make you straighten your hair like that. All, I mean, and maybe it's her choice. Maybe the she feels. Humidity. Imagine how much work she has to go to, to us not knowing. That's not her choice. Yes. No, of course not. She has the incredibly curly hair. You have to wear like whatever designers, you know, British designers that you should be wearing. Like she's got 19 pairs of beige pumps. Like it's not, it's, it's not the, the greatest existence. And, and then of course, you know, I'm sure she's very thrilled to have her three children, but she has those unbelievably awful pregnancies each time. Yeah. And they're not optional. Yeah, they're not optional. And I mean, I the first one, if it's what I've imagined, it's like she has very little control over that first kid. Like she, that kid's education, everything is out of her hands. It's very, very much out of her hands. And with Kate and William had, of course, known each other since college and had been together with, I think, one, possibly two breakups since college. And they got right. married later. And I think at the time that was great. First of all, it's no one should marry. Diana was way too young when she yeah. married family she was just like a like an unformed person she was a baby she was 19 i still can't believe that i total baby he was a billion years old for his age and compared to her he was significantly older anyway she had gone through a horrific parental divorce and was raised by her father but basically by governesses and had very little formal education and had read almost exclusively historical romance novels, which are great. I love historical yes. romance novels, but what they prepare you for is to be the charming, rash, different, loving young woman who melts the heart of the cold, distant, aristocratic family you have to marry into. And yeah. they change and they love you. They love you. And. Uh, and everything is healed by your love and your youth. And it's just not what happened. Yeah. And she was not prepared for that. No one yeah. was prepared for that. And I, I, yeah. Charles was not prepared to have people be more interested in his wife than they were in him. Yeah. But he's not interesting. And she was. Exactly. And that's the same pattern repeating with Megan. I think Megan did have this dream of I'm going to join the royal family. And I mean, there there is like, okay, yeah, it's shocking that someone in the royal family married a black woman. But as a black woman, I look at her and I'm like, she knows that she has the colorism and light skin privileges to pass and marry into this family. And I have to believe she had this thought of, I will marry into this family and they are going to embrace me as a symbol of change. And they'll see that I'm a way they can stay relevant and I'm actually an asset to them. And I think she thought like oh, of course they're going to adapt and embrace me and step into the 21st century. <laughs> and it was like... And clever. But yeah, and they should have, but then it, it didn't work out that way. And I think she got in there and realized, oh, no, I am not, I'm not going to be the one to do this. No, and I really, I greatly respect them choosing to get the hell out of there. Yeah. I think what we learned from the interview was that, you know, her mental health struggles were so much more significant than we had known. They were met with such utter lack of interest by the courtiers or by his family. 
Of um, course. I mean, this is a family that like, and again, totally basing this off the crown, but I mean, the queen just like sent her own sister to rot on an island when it was so clear that she needed mental health help. It's like, what were they going to do for Megan? <laughs> no, seriously, what were they going to do for Megan? Megan wanted to potentially be allowed to be hospitalized. And of course, they would never have let that happen. Yeah. They have to announce pregnancies early when Kate has to go in to get an IV. Like you can't have any kind of weird hospitalization-y stuff taking place. But also, I mean, what help could they offer her other than to do the thing they should have done, which is they do have a lot of control over the tablets. They pretend they don't, but they do. Yeah. They're able to push stories which are favorable to themselves. And they are able to dangle access in front of reporters in order to get those stories. And they were willing to do it for Kate and they were not willing to do it for Megan. Yeah. Many people have broken that down. A lot of people have referenced that great Ellie Hall piece for BuzzFeed where she just put up the side-by-side tabloid headlines of like... Yeah, that's... An avocado. Out of- Beautiful. <laughs> Symbol of motherhood. Warm. Lovely. Megan. Destroying the environment. <laughs> like, what a monster. Like, yeah. it, it would be hilarious if it weren't also so deeply, deeply tragic. We had the straight out of Compton headlines. And it's like, first of all, I'm sorry, Megan's messy white family. Yeah. It's, it's so embarrassing. And then we have Doria, who's this like stunning social worker who has just been this beacon of like love and support and continuity in her life. And yeah. Yet we have the straight out of Compton headlines. It's yeah, just- and there's just so much disconnect in how she's treated, how she's treated as a black woman. In that interview, I, I mean, I like I said, never really knew much about the royal family. After that, I was like, would do whatever Harry and Meghan want. I am willing to like make them American royalty, whatever they need uh, to get Archie the protection he needs. I mean, the whole part about them not wanting to give Archie protection, like how are you the queen? And you're like, I don't care about my grandson. I just, we really cannot separate this from what is not being done to Prince Andrew. Yes. Like vitally important. That's also the thing where it's like, I understand that they want to have some idea of like, Oh, well, Harry should have these standards and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, what standards does he have to meet? He's not even the next king. He should be able to like get married and live his life and be happy. And you would think that like the queen would understand that as someone whose father like was forced to like take on the role as like the second brother and stuff that she'd be like, you live your life. But instead they're like, you have to meet these standards. But then Prince Andrew isn't a full on pedophile. <laughs> or I guess I hate using the, the I think he's a hebophile. I don't yeah, hebophile. I was <laughs> like, yeah. He's done some sketchy ass stuff with someone who is a habitual sexual predator. He was very close friends with a habitual sexual predator. And all they've done is just like, okay, you can't do royal stuff. Yeah, you can't do royal but, stuff. No, no interview. list, which is the list of people who collect money. Yeah. You know. You're still walking to church in a show of strength with the family on Christmas morning, et cetera, et cetera. And watching Megan just get frozen out at every turn during this process was really terrifying. I found it interesting that they they spoke a lot in the interview because obviously you don't want to shit talk your family more than absolutely necessary. And you can see that, you know, Harry's still on the fence about like yeah. okay, going forward. Like, what can I say and not say? Yeah, but- you can tell he wants to protect his like family connections. Yeah, I found it interesting that he told Oprah that it wasn't the Queen or Philip who said the thing. Yeah. Because on one hand, you're like, okay, he's 
making sure we know it's not them, but that's really a, he's letting you know who it is. Who it is. Yeah. Now we're down to two suspects. To two suspects that it would be damaging for. And I feel like for Charles, it's really not that damaging. Like if it, I, I, to me, it, it had to be William. Like I personally am inclined to think it is William as well. Again, this is pure speculation on my part, but the fact that he has indicated that he and his father are now speaking where his relationship with William is quote unquote space. Yeah. That is just, that's my personal sense, but I think, you know, I think it's possible. It was a question, a conversation that Charles and William were having and William mentioned it to him. That was just the moment, right? That was the moment apart from, I think, taking her passport, which I also think. Yeah. That part was so wild to me. I was like, why can't you have a passport? Why can't she have her passport? Like she had to become a member of the Church of England, you know. Yeah, I, I don't think they phrased it as a "you have to," but she certainly. I'm did. sure she had to. Yeah, and like, thank God she didn't give up her American citizenship. Yeah, this process that would have been a disaster. But they talked a lot about how it's not really the royal family themselves that are so terrible. A lot of who's so terrible is the the very very like staid and conservative people who run the ship. So the Tommy yeah. Lassels of the world, the Michael Adines. Yes, you know, the, the firm. The firm. The people you recognize from the crown as being like, no, you can't do the thing that I said you yeah. could do. It's like, I know you think you want to change your last name, but, and it's like, oh, come on, fight against them. This is happening. And they're often right, historically, because you do often get the, I think I said this, I used to recap the crown which is total fiction, but I enjoy it a lot. And it's it's more right than it's wrong a lot of the time. But I said at one point that I felt like the frustration you see in, in someone like Tommy Lassels is the idea that if it weren't for the actual royal family, he could run the royal family so well. Yeah. <laughs> but Like he was really truly right about what they had to do to maintain the monarchy. And he was right in saying that everything they wanted to, to to modernize it would just bring its downfall. It's like, that's the thing is that I agree with all these people in the firm that it's like the second you let any of the like sort of, I guess, rot in or you let any of the softness in at the edges, throw the whole thing out. Like, come on. What are you doing here? It's 2021. Why do we have this family? And it's very, it's very difficult for them to both evolve and survive. But I was thinking of the fact that a favorite detail of mine about the royal family, which I have many favorite details about because it's one of my autistic special interests and I know a lot about it. But so, first of all, Meghan and Harry had an awesome wedding. That was a great wedding. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Incredibly fantastic wedding. William and Kate had a much bigger wedding, obviously, because he was the actual heir to the throne. And after the wedding, of course, they had the reception to which far fewer people were invited. It's like, you know, you and Elton John and Sir Paul McCartney, and then like a thousand people with 19 names. And the signature cocktail at the wedding was a cocktail, which is Kate's favorite cocktail. It's like vodka and pomegranate juice and passion fruit, pardon me. You can Google it if you want. But it was uh, her favorite drink from this terrible, trashy nightclub that hideous young aristocrats used to go to in London called Bougies, which is no longer with us. But it's called the Crack Baby. The Crack Baby. The Crack Baby, (laughs) Ashley. And that's the official drink that they, that's the name. Like, like you go up to the bar and it's like, here's the cocktails. And on the paper, it said the crack baby. I think at Bougie's for a while, they might have, and I may be pronouncing that wrong. I have not been there. I do not (laughs) intend to go. But they, I believe they used to serve it in test tubes at the restaurant. 
just to really give you a sense of what a classy, classy establishment this was. Yeah. But what really burns my grits is not just that there was this drink with this horrible racist name, or that Kate liked this drink with this horrible racist name, but when they were planning the wedding and they were like, signature cocktail, how about that favorite drink of Kate's? No one who worked for this organization, which is all about optics and sound bites and exactly how things are perceived and being very dignified was like, let's call it a Middleton. Yeah. <laughs> let's call it the Kate. Yeah, exactly. No, let's just crack baby. It's fine. Crack we're just baby. A royal reception in the 21st century. We're just going to be serving something called the crack baby. Do you think That's anyone had to explain that. that to the queen? Do you think anyone had to be like, so this is the menu and... <laughs> I don't think she's ordering off the menu. I think people are just making her gin and tonics and she's happy with that. But no, it's to me, like it seems very totemic because it's just, they didn't, no one said to them, this is a bad idea. There's no one working for that organization with the degree of awareness of the world in which we currently live to have said, Hey, quick thought. That's super offensive. Don't do that. And that it was within such recent memory. And I wanted to double check that this was real because of course we're all like, it's called the what now? Yeah. Like you, even you're still saying, I'm just like, there's no way that this is a real fact that they just let them do this. They didn't let them do this. But when I was Googling it to make sure I had two sources, like in the newsroom, (laughs) the Daily Telegraph, which is a Tory paper. It's very pro the Royals. Yeah had a story about like what's the favorite drink of everyone in the royal family and they got to kate and they were just like the crack baby it's made of passion fruit juice and vodka and like but with no no sense of like this unfortunately named cocktail nothing nothing just just they're so oblivious they're oblivious yeah i think that the interview so their approval ratings have tanked uh megan and harry's have gone down in the uk since the interview oh bananas but americans are fired up oh yeah i we're like they can come over here they can be our royalty we don't care we'll take care of them they can live in tyler perry's mansion for as long as they need we got you over here great detail detail. they were like to who can we turn yeah tyler perry is the answer we were hoping we would get them up in canada because you know they were hanging out there yeah i know they wanted to stay in the commonwealth for a while and then they were like well looks like we have to do that yeah. We on the money. We can't be part of this. Yeah. Growing up, my mother always put, we had, you know, stamps with the queen on them because it's Canada. And she would always put them on upside down as like, <laughs> a, fuck you, we're Irish. <laughs> yeah. And really, I'm like, wow, I should have listened to my mom. Like for all those years. Now it's like, <laughs> it's so hot. I'm a teenager. He's my age. I could be a yeah. princess. Like, well, first of all, you can't because you were baptized Catholic. <laughs> like blah 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 and secondly we are you know we're irish canadian we do not like these people and this fucked and now like decades later i'm watching this interview knowing that this is nonsense yeah I know monarchy is ridiculous i enjoy it and i know it's ridiculous like there are lots of things i love that are ridiculous but then this person is being just like this very lovely person is being so personally harmed yeah. in this situation. And just also feeling impressed that she had the support of her spouse that Diana did not have. Yeah. And that her own struggles. And that makes a huge difference. Like Harry is making making the baseline correct choice when your wife is being treated this way, but yeah. a lot 
of people don't make the baseline. Don't make the choice. And I could see another world where he stayed and they ended up divorced and she separates. That seems so realistic to me. And I'm happy that they're doing it this way, even though at the same turn, I'm like, I don't care about the Royals in a perfect world. We're not talking about either of them because none of this exists. Uh, (laughs) But yes. Harry, some boy, he would just be some boy in England. (laughs) Yeah, but here we are with this royalist system. So we do what we can with it. This is what we're looking at. So the the last thing I wanted to talk about is the Allen versus Pharaoh doc. So again, throwing up that trigger warning now, we will be talking about child sexual assault and abuse. Uh, Yes, real bad. So if you want to tune out now, this is the chance. This is the end of the interview. So you won't be missing too much. But really wanted to talk to you about this doc because, you know, you write about parenting for Slate. Obviously, this is such a difficult documentary to get into. And as someone who wasn't really alive for a lot of it and has been just on the other end where I lived through this period in the early 2000s where Alan was sort of glorified again. I think when Midnight in Paris came out, it was like, oh my gosh, he's a genius again. We can be okay with this. And then I also am now seeing the backlash again where it's like, oh, the actual facts of this are coming out. So. I'm so curious what you thought about it. How did you think it handled it? And I know so many people have criticized how the documentary treats Mia as a parent. So I, first of all, so I watched the first episode of Alan versus Farrah, which I think is generally pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I think he's a terrible person. I would just want to get that. I believe Dylan Farrah. Yes. Same, um, yes. Wholeheartedly. I think that he did everything she said he did to her. And so I'm very glad the documentary exists. When I watched the first episode, I immediately reached out to anyone I knew who could get me a screener because I felt I couldn't be that mad every Monday morning yeah. for four weeks in a row. I wanted to get all of my fury out at once because it's a very infuriating documentary. And what I appreciate about the documentary is, first of all, I should say that I I don't find it helpful when we're having conversations about a famous person who may have done something terrible and people are like, I never liked their art anyway, which yeah. is far. It's just not super helpful. It's not helpful. It doesn't help the conversation. It doesn't help the conversation. So I will say like, I love many Woody Allen movies. Like as a teenager, as a person in my twenties, like I love Annie Hall. I love uh, crimes and misdemeanors. Oh yeah. I loved all like his movies after Ingmar Bergman. They were the ones that were my favorite when I was like 15, 16. I will say, did they have an impact on me? By the time I was 19, I was engaged and I wanted to have a crimes and misdemeanors themed engagement party. So yeah, you know, (laughs) I think like there is something about Woody Allen's films, like at that age of coming of age, your early or like late teens, early 20s, where you see something in it that you're like, oh, this is existential. This is so important. I am smarter because I relate to this. And I think, you know, existential is perfect because it's something that's brought up in that last episode as to why people have such a hard time believing Dylan Farrow, which is that people didn't just like Woody Allen movies. They felt themselves like transformed by them on a molecular level. Yeah. That to like Woody Allen made you a different kind of person. It made you a smarter person. It made you a person who was slightly on the outside looking into society. It made neuroses interesting. It made messy people acceptable. Like the whole nonsense about like female characters. Like it's like they didn't exist before, you know, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> before Annie Hall, which 
is a whole <laughs> other conversation. Yeah, like Lindsay Bell did Lindsay not Bell create female characters. Invented women in Annie Hall, and we are also grateful to him for that. But I think that what I learned from Alan versus Pharaoh, and then I do want to talk about my problems with Alan versus Pharaoh. But what I think is good about Alan versus Pharaoh and really important was, first of all, I had no idea how many other people witnessed or raised concerns about Alan's behavior towards Dylan. Or that those concerns and the time in which he was in therapy for being inappropriate with Dylan so far preceded Mia Farrow finding out about Sumi. Yeah. That was a real eye-opener for me because I, you know, despite being someone who felt myself moderately informed, had so I had assumed he did it because I generally assume people do things when people say they have done them, especially of this nature. Uh, certainly after Dylan wrote her op-ed in the New York Times, I was like, oh, that, that shit absolutely happened and he did yeah. that shit. That was like, I'm there. But I realized that Alan had so successfully framed it as scorned woman overreacts by doing X, Y, Z, that I had not been aware that Dylan was already in therapy, that Woody was already in therapy, that these things all occurred before the infamous finding of the photographs. Yeah. I had no idea about the, really the patience that Mia Farrow showed him from even before Sunyi. And I mean, after like Woody tries to say like, oh, she did all this like woman scorned and like he brought uh, to court this like document she had made where it was like the family in a heart. She had put like forks in his eyes and he was like, see what she's teaching the family to hate me. And she was like, no, that was therapy so that I could get it out in crafts and not stab you in the face. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing restraint that she got the help. She was like, I'm going to do what's best for my kids and focus on that. And they really document that process. And on the other end of it, you know that Alan is, like you said, was in therapy for his odd behavior over Dylan, but he never addresses it after. Like, he's never like, it's just that never happened, that never existed. And to me, that's so incriminating. It's absolutely deeply incriminating. And I think also, he somehow, despite having had the, the best lawyers and like, oh my God, Dart, that awful PR person, manages to sort of create this idea of like, okay, me is creating this huge media mess. And I'm just this lone, quivering little old man yeah. over here. Whereas, in fact, like the, the, the coverage at the time, I was really shocked. I was really shocked by how it was like a battle between Woody and Mia. And the, I'm grateful that Dylan was largely absent from the public conversation at that time. Because as we have discussed, the public like, yeah. sphere at the time was terrible. And it would have been, you know, I am glad they did not proceed to trial. Yeah, I think it would have been horrible for her. And honestly, you kind of see that with how the media treated Sunyi. And it's kind of to some extent, like Woody was like, oh, maybe if I focus on the Sunyi of it all, like people will just kind of focus on her. Yeah, not not look at like what I did to my seven year old. But like you saw stories in the media where it was like, she was this seductive temptress or like she was too dumb to know what was happening to her. I hated that. I found that deeply offensive. And I think, you know, Woody also tried a little of that with Dylan too. I I recall there were things, but you know, maybe she has learning disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. As though, well, first of all, like people with intellectual disabilities are more likely to be victims of sexual assault of all kinds of abuse of all kinds of crime of all kinds than of people without them like that. That's, 
that's a very real problem. And yeah. it's certainly not something that should be like thrown around in in this particular conversation. What I found striking watching Alan versus Pharaoh is so you and I were discussing earlier documentaries that have done a really good job on individual cases of, of child sexual abuse. We were talking about Rewind, which is yeah. absolutely phenomenal. So um, good. Multi-generational sexual abuse, really well done. I was just revisiting Deliver Us from Evil, which is a truly awfully disturbing documentary about Oliver O'Grady, the Catholic priest that Roger Mahoney, the former His Eminence, Roger Mahoney, allowed to just absolutely run riot in California. For yeah. Just a disgusting situation. And more recently, that bananas abducted in plain sight. Oh, yeah. Abducted in plain sight is a classic. That Abducted in plain sight. And I found that Alan versus Pharaoh and I'm going to say also Leaving Neverland have been separated out from these documentaries in kind of a weird way, which is all of these documentaries are about the incredibly grotesquely quotidian nature of how child sexual abusers operate, how they groom families and not just people, often literally sleeping with parents to get access to children. And instead of thinking of Alan versus Pharaoh the way we think of, say, Deliver Us From Evil, we instead put these in the category of like celebrity takedowns, where yeah. it's the person, the celebrity is the, did they do it or did they not? Like it's this very much a sort of like takedown of a powerful person. It's how they're seen. It's how they're discussed, these documentaries. But actually, they are just like the others. They are just these horrifically banal, often very well done documentaries about the very typical ways in which people who wish to prey on children prey on children, Yeah, uh, which is grooming families. It is usually within the family. As a parenting columnist, you know, I get a lot of questions, obviously, from people with concerns about keeping their children safe. And something positive that's come out of the last 10, 15 years or so is that we're finally beginning to loosen ourselves from this stranger danger fear. And that is not to say that stranger abductions do not happen or are not terrifying or that we should not, you know, equip our children to handle themselves as best possible and to avoid dangerous situations. But we've gotten much better at instead informing parents that what you have to talk to your kids about is inappropriate and dangerous and in behaviors. Yeah. Like these are the things which are wrong. We're not dangerous people because that immediately kids remove their close friends and family from that. From Yeah. And you see that with Dylan. She says, I thought this is how dads loved their children. I thought this was normal. Mm -hmm. And in Rewind, you see that too, where he's like, I knew something wasn't right, but I thought this is my family. Why would it be wrong? Why would it be wrong? No, it's absolutely the the vast, vast majority of child sexual assault and child sexual abuse is close friends and family members of the child. It is a vanishingly small fraction of child sexual abuse that is committed by someone the child does not know. And by teaching people, teaching your children to recognize like scary strangers, it's just a waste of time in many situations. What instead we need to do like, these are things that no one should do to you. These are ways you should not feel with anyone. And you need to come to a trusted adult and tell them if anyone, and you need to be specific, you need to be, you know, aunts, uncles, my friend James, who hangs out here, like anything, your dad's girlfriend, my boyfriend, you have to be this way about it. 
even though it's uncomfortable and even though yeah. it makes adults uncomfortable because it doesn't make adults uncomfortable in the same way to be like, don't talk to strangers. Yeah. So that's useful. And also you have to tell your child how to talk safely with strangers. Sometimes they're going to need things from strangers. You want kids to be like, okay, who do I ask for directions? Find a person, you know, with their own kids, etc. Like there's yeah. a lot of direction you can do in this way. But it is so important to demysticize, uh, demystify and really delve into the issues of what behaviors are never okay. Yeah. And also, we have to be so careful with how we say that because this is something I had mentioned to you earlier, and then when I was rewatching Deliver Us from Evil, I heard it spoken out loud, but something so common that parents do by thinking of the person who could potentially harm their child as a stranger is, I don't know how many times I've heard a parent say something or heard a child say their parent has said something like, if anyone ever hurt you, I'd kill them. Yeah. Because this is a way of showing like my love and protectiveness towards my child. But because the person who is likeliest to hurt your child is someone they care about, that keeps kids from coming forward. Yeah. Often it keeps kids from coming forward because they're afraid you will kill that person and they love that person despite the fact they're being harmed by them. Or in the case of the child in Deliver Me From Evil, her father told her that she was being harmed by this priest. And she asked her friend, what happens to people if they kill someone? And the person said they go to jail forever and ever and ever. And yeah. she said she knew in that moment she would never tell her father what happened because she loved him and she didn't want him to go to prison forever and ever. Yeah. And, and I, I think people don't think about those consequences with the family dynamic of, and especially with Alan versus Pharaoh and with Dylan, she talks about how she never really saw herself as an, an, a CSA survivor or an incest survivor. And to me, it's like you look at his defenders and I get so mad when they say, well, it wasn't even his biological children oh. and he wasn't even really a father to them. He didn't even sleep there as though that makes any difference or as, as though that matters at all. No, and that's, you know, when it's helpful to have the acreage of home footage that you know, we have in this document. Yeah. Where it's like, really like, come on, there's, this is a man in his family. <laughs> like you can't look at this guy who said, I'm going to adopt these three kids. I've been with this woman for years and say, Oh, well really, I mean, they weren't even really his kids and he barely even saw that. He saw them like once yeah, every three months. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's laughable. It truly is. And it's, I think that the interviews with the social workers, the reports from people like Paul Williams, who were unfairly fired yeah. because of you know, their insistence on taking Dylan seriously, the Connecticut prosecutor's office, you know, there, there are so many experts and non-experts in this movie who can just very movingly and clearly and without bias attest to the actual facts of the case and the unchangingness of Dylan's story which I think is really important because the problem with Alan versus Pharaoh is that Mia Pharaoh is probably not great. And yes. <laughs> that's what I, I And think they, re they really want us to believe she's great in the documentary. They really do. And I don't think it's necessary because Dylan is great. And Dylan is an adult woman who can speak for herself. And Mia Pharaoh is not that necessary. To yeah. this and I think that because Woody was able to weaponize Mia not being great against Dylan, it's uncomfortable to be someone who believes Dylan to say, hey, you know, also, we should probably pay attention if the non-white kids in this family said they were treated less well than the white children in this family. And yeah. 
physical abuse at the hands of Mia Farrow. Like, I think we should have space for that. I don't think this is the project for it. Necessarily, this is about what happened to Dylan. Um, yeah. for which it does not matter. But yeah. And, and in the fourth episode, I respect that they do try to address it. They point out that Moses and Sunni have made these accusations and they're just kind of like, oh, everybody says she was a good mom. And like, if she wasn't a good mom, she wouldn't have been allowed to adopt more kids, which is another questionable thing. But <laughs> I have no idea why she was allowed to adopt so many kids. So many children. And it, it comes down to like, well, she's Mia Farrow with wealth and privilege and she's famous. So even Woody Allen was allowed to adopt more children after this whole fiasco. Like, I don't think that's a good yeah. testament of the government ensuring either one of them is a good parent. But they get at some of Moses's charges. They talk about where he's questioned Dylan and how he's wrong there. But they don't really ever address the racial aspect. They never get into, they bring out Quincy, uh, Mia Farrow's Black daughter, who you might remember, like, back in, I think, 2015, on her birthday, Mia Farrow said happy birthday to Quincy on Twitter and just posted a screenshot of a Google search that said, Mia Farrow's Black daughter. Uh, <laughs> So oh I'd forgotten that completely. Yeah, everybody forgot about that. But it's like, this is a family where race is an issue. <laughs> oh, very much so. And I think that when Daphne Merkin did the SUNY profile for New York Magazine, I remember reading it and thinking, okay, I like Woody Allen less than I did before, which was not very much. And I also like Mia Farrow less. Less, yeah. <laughs> and I had not known much about Mia Farrow. But no, I think the, the parts of that profile that struck me were what appears to be a reasonable claim about a pattern of racist behavior towards Mia Farrow's non-white children that I think is certainly worth discussing. You know? Yeah. I, I appreciate the documentary was like, the things Moses said to discredit Dylan are demonstrably untrue. Yeah train set, the fact he wasn't there, et cetera, et cetera. People can watch the documentary. Yeah. And they can see that. They do say like, oh, I never saw anyone locked in closets or barns, but they don't say he's absolutely wrong to say she treated the children of color differently. They don't go that deep into discrediting him around it. And different siblings grow up in very different homes. Yeah. That's something that everyone can attest to, but especially families with transracial adoptions. It's, it's absolutely extremely possible that the experience that Moses and Sunni had growing up in that family was not the experience that Dylan or Ronan yeah. or Walter had growing up. And to me, the thing is, in that profile, Woody seems to agree with that assessment. He's like, yes, I saw this girl who had an abusive mom and had become really quiet and inward. And actually, Mia asked me to reach out to her because she was so sullen and lost because she was in this abusive situation where her mother didn't love her. And they seem to think that makes them look good. But all I saw was, oh, you saw an, a situation you could take advantage of. You yeah, saw a girl in an abusive home and you thought, I can groom this girl. Oh, and I think, too, the, the documentary also attests to the fact that it was not the first year in college. Where yeah. And so oh, yeah. And obviously, grooming can take place over the course of a decade before anything happens. Like, I don't think there was some magical moment where this became appropriate, yeah. right? There's never going to be like a, a moment back in time where you're like, oh, this is all fine. Yeah. Like they're married, they're happy, God bless. But it was deeply fucked up. And the grooming absolutely took place while she was in high school. Um, yeah. There was just simply way too much evidence to believe the condom. Yeah, when you have his like maids and stuff saying, yeah, she used to sleep here and there would be condoms in the trash the next day. It's like, 
they can say whatever they want. And I think in that interview, she says, it was so long ago now, who can remember? But it's like... His other teen girlfriend who spoke in the documentary. Yeah, <laughs> was like, uh, not the kind of guy who wouldn't sleep with a teenager. So what That's makes you think he waited until she was a freshman in college? Like, I can't remember the first time I saw Manhattan, if I knew how fucked Manhattan was or not. I really may not have. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't. I mean, I was probably 16, 17 when I saw it. And I, I think I remember being like, this is gross, but I guess this is like art films. I think I just was like, I guess you're supposed to, you know, within the world of the film and the art and this isn't true to life. Really, when the teenage girlfriend was in the documentary, that was the first time I realized, oh, Manhattan is based on a real girl. Just a real person. Real person who he said, you're my muse for this, because so many defenders will try to say the movie's not about dating a teenage girl. It's about fathers and sons. And it's like, no, yeah, New York and feeling lost. And it's like, no, he straight up told the 17 year old girl, you're my muse for this. You're my muse. That's you. It's literally you. Yeah, it's extremely apparent. I also appreciate the gentleman who was going through his like papers at, is it Yale or Princeton that has his papers? And was just like, oh, all the movies he didn't make are also <laughs> all about the same thing. Which all is the a same thing. teenager falling in love with, a neurotic, with an old, a, a neurotic old man. And it's like for a guy who pulled so much of, from his life. Yeah. Who is like writing about his family, who's pulling at just every issue he's ever had. And after this like horrific custody thing in 1993, he never writes a movie about like, oh, the horror of being a parent who lost your children, the horror of, uh, you know, having a child who is dealing with this type of sexual assault or false accusations. There's never anything about this. It is just him doing interviews where he's like, oh, I totally miss Dylan. Never mentions Moses or Ronan. He's always just oddly like, I really miss Dylan. I can't see my kids. Oh, but thanks to all the people at the Knicks games cheering me on. And then he just keeps making movies about young women dating old men. <laughs> like those are his priorities. This is also it. Like what consequences has he faced? The man has made a million movies. His no. last handful are going to come out just in Europe. Like people are distancing themselves from him, which they fucking should. Yeah. Uh, he is extremely wealthy. He can still go play his clarinet on Monday or Thursday nights at the Carlisle, whenever it is he does that. And he's got kids and he's fine. Yeah. You know? He knows everyone's just waiting for him to die. You know, and I think they invariably get into the question of like, can we separate the art from the artist and the documentary? I'm like, it's a personal decision for each person. It's for every, not- yeah. Yeah. Even as someone for me where I'm like, I personally don't want to watch any of his movies. If someone else is like, ah, I can separate it. I mean, fine, whatever. That's your personal choice. <laughs> you I know, like my mind and everyone can have their own. Is I just don't give him money. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah, I, that's just my personal mind. I watched Crimes and Misdemeanors last year and I was like, God, this is such a good movie. That it's guy's an amazing a, movie. Yeah. It's an amazing uh, movie. Yeah. This guy's just look. And that's. If there was a free way for me to watch Zelig, I'd do it. It, <laughs> it used to come on on HBO just like every other day. I swear to God, like every other day on HBO, Zelig would be on at like 1 p.m. when I was 15. And that's why I fell in love with that movie. Now you got to pay for it. And I just refuse. I think someone in the documentary is like, once he's dead, uh, yeah. then it'll go to the estate. Who cares? <laughs> but no, I, I'm very happy for Dylan Farrow to have found happiness in life. She seems to be in a good place. She also seems to still really struggle physically and emotionally with the ramifications of having been a survivor of child sexual abuse. And yeah. I, I hope that 
this documentary inspires people to come forward and be honest and to believe other people. Like all of that is great. And also, if Moses Farrow wants to write a book about Mia Farrow, if Moses and Sunni want to write a book about Mia Farrow yeah. being douche, then like I'll buy it. Yeah, if they want to, if they want to work on another documentary project with Woody back in it, I will watch that too, gladly. No part of me thinks it's impossible that they grew up in a home yeah. where somebody behaved. In a I, abusive I person. am sure they could put something together, and I would give that just as fair of a shake. But it yeah, doesn't make Woody any better. Does not help. Yeah, no, doesn't help his case at all. Well. We've been talking for so long about so many things. We hit on everything I wanted to discuss with you. Everything. Every single thing. I We had such a long like agenda coming into this. We were both so excited. And I just want to say... things out, people. We yeah. things out. We, we, yeah, we were like, no, we gotta, we'll just skip past this. We said one thing I wanted to start talking about on the record, the HBO documentary about Russell Simmons, because it's made by the same people who made Alan versus Pharaoh. Yes. And it's now trying, they're trying to kind of do the same thing where they like they tear down the creators and are saying, oh, well, actually, they didn't treat the victims right. So you shouldn't believe this story. And it's like, no, it's still the truth. Russell Simmons still did these things. You can't distract from it. And it's just the whole PR circus that the Allen estate is doing, too. It's just silly. No, it's predictable. And it's silly. And it's, uh, it's logical. You know, it's going to happen. You knew it was going to happen going in, but just try to recognize it for what it is. Yeah. That's all you can do. Well, thank you for coming on to TV, I say, helping us focus on the facts with Brittany, the Royals, and this amazing (laughs) and this documentary. So thank you so much. It has been a delight. Thank you. We were able to get serious. We were able to have fun. What more can we ask for? Absolutely perfect. Uh, What an amazing conversation. I want to thank my guest, Nicole Cliff, again. And thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please rate and review. Give us five stars. Come on, please. Thank you. Or, you know, you can always support our Patreon, the newsletter, or just follow us online at TVISAPod, patreon.com slash TVISAPod, or just go to my website, www.theashleyray.com, for all the information on supporting the podcast. But, you know... You know, all I want you to do is just keep listening. Rate five stars. Keep listening. That's all I need. And like I said, we have one more episode, then we'll be taking a little hiatus after our our, our first season. I feel like 22 episodes is, is a good number of episodes because that's like how many episodes a good solid a season of network TV used to have. So that's what I'm going to aim for 22, take a little hiatus, come back after a month. And I think that's how we're going to do things from here on out. So... Thanks so much for listening. This has been TV I Say with Ashley Wright, and we'll be back next week with another episode. The TV I Say theme song was made by Rafia Santana, and our artwork was created by Chastity Hyman. TV I Say with Ashley Ray. Another episode, another episode of TV I Say with Ashley. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, 
I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.